Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This is Matt here from Silver Fortune. It is time for my weekly wrap-up video. I have uh, quite a few different topics, as you can see here on the top. Of, of my browser here, quite a few different tabs that I wanted to go over and I'll try and, and not get too bogged down by any of them. But as the title of this video suggests, I do want to start off with precious metals. Now I talked about this a bit last night, precious metals and in, in my live stream, if you didn't check it out, uh, you were missing out actually I had quite a few uh, patrons on for discussion as well as uh, my wife and I think my daughter made an, appoint, uh, an appearance as well. But the title of it was talking about this, the gold to silver ratio, which actually it looks like last night made a new high, sometime last night, early this morning, a new 27-year high. The last time the gold to silver ratio was this high, we'd have to look all the way back to 1992, 27 years ago. Pretty significant. Now, it's certainly gone a little higher than I expected it to. I thought the 85 to 1 was, was about as high as it was going to go. It's continuing to go higher, and as the title of this video would suggest, I'm wondering if it's a bit of a make or break point for precious metals. Now, I don't want to get too carried away here. Right now, we're talking about gold around 1275, silver around 1440. When I say it's make or break, and and if we go down the, the route of potential breakdown in the silver and gold price, I'm not talking about $1,000 gold or or 100 to 1 ratio or $10 silver or something like that. That is, you guys remember, you know, going back to, to the fall time to the last summer, 2018, that the whole way down, there were people calling for those types of numbers. And, and along the way, I, I tried to become a, uh, I guess, a calm voice of, of reason, basically saying that it's, it's pretty unlikely for silver and gold to drop that low. Not to say it won't, but it's pretty unlikely. Now, the big driver that I see for this ratio really widening, I think, you know, besides just manipulation or some weird market dynamics, would be the, the potential for an economic slowdown. You know, the, the the prospects for silver maybe having a decreased demand in the future. That, along with the fact that that when metals drop, silver sometimes drops to a greater extent than than gold. But this is really short term stuff that that I'm watching here and. and you know, I, I, I don't want to go at length as to why I think silver has a greater potential than gold to, to perform well in the next economic downturn rather than, than worse than gold. Now, another big driver of this is also the gold to silver ratio. Or sorry, not the gold to silver. That, that's the other tab here. The dollar index, DXY index, which currently sits at around 98. And again, those that are expecting something like $1,000 gold, $12 silver, something like that, um, are expecting a significant rally in the dollar index. And again, this goes back to the beginning, that the make or break scenario. I wouldn't be surprised to see that happen at this point. With, with the strength that we've seen in the dollar breaking through its its key uh, uh, resistance level of 97.5, first back in, in late April, um, and, and then again very recently uh, bes besides this breakout here and, and kind of trading around that range, I wouldn't be surprised if we see the dollar move up and I wouldn't be surprised if we see gold and silver move down. Now, Again, not to the extent that 
some people would expect because I think that this rally in the dollar is going to be muted at, at some point, the dollar index. Now, if we look at it uh, from, from a wider perspective, you know, the, the recent high in the dollar was uh, shortly after the Trump election, shortly after 2016 election, topping out around 102, 103. I think that was, it might've been higher on like a, a daily basis or weekly basis, but that was around the high back then. We still have a ways uh, to go before we hit that type of a level. I kind of see 100, just kind of as a round number, is potentially being, now Now remember, I mean, the DXY is is important, but it's also just based on, on currency pairs. So, you know, the significance of these technical levels, you have to remember that there's also a thousand and one other technical levels that are important with, with the Euro-Dollar pair, the the, the, the um, Euro, not the Euro-Dollar, but the Euro and the Dollar, the Yen and the Dollar, uh, and, and, and various other currencies that are, that are included in the DXY index, as well as just other ones that may be important, but aren't actually included. So the hundred, you know, so if I could, if I could put a number on it, hundred on the DXY would be a, a big number to watch even 99, you know, on the way up. But my, my overall thesis here is that, you know, regardless of what the technical levels are in terms of resistance, I won't be surprised if we see the dollar move up. And, and of course, that means gold and silver could move down. You know, we're, we could be talking $14 silver again, believe it or not. Uh, $12.50 for gold, $12.30, somewhere around there. However, I am not buying the argument that the, the dollar is going to go up significantly. I, I, I've been for a while talking about how I think a, a strong dollar is overall going to be a destabilizing factor. Apologize for that. There, I just paused it real quick. Uh, the, uh, a higher dollar, I think, is me destabilizing for the global economy. And at some point, I think the Fed, now it could be this summer, it could be early fall, they're going to start pulling some levers to weaken the dollar. Now, this could also tie into the trade war in, in, in China and their attempts to maybe offset some tariffs by weakening their yuan. I mean, that's something to watch as well. If we see the yuan get close to the 7 to 1, that, that key threshold, 7 yuan to, to 1 dollar, or above that, again, that could be a signal for the Fed to, to step in and maybe loosen policy to, to try and weaken the dollar. You know, a strong dollar is great when you're buying uh, all these, these imports from China, but it also, you know, helps to, to offset these tariffs that were put in place against uh, to, to, to combat uh, China in, in this trade war. So, again, I think the Fed is going to step in at some point. And, and you could even see it from Trump. You could see it from Kudlow, Larry Kudlow, one of his top economic advisors, asking for the Fed to weaken the dollar. Or, or all out just calling for a weaker dollar, right? Saying that it's better for trade, it's better for whatever. Because I think pretty soon people are going to realize that it is damaging or destabilizing to emerging markets and, and potentially the whole, the whole market and the whole global financial system. And it also is potentially reflecting just that, an unstable financial system, a euro dollar squeeze, whatever you want to call it. And so once it goes higher, I think the one thing that maybe people are discounting is, is Fed loosening that policy for, for a variety of reasons. It could be because of economic weakness. It could be because what they're saying in terms of inflation, higher inflation. It could be because of, of um, the Fed trying to loosen financial conditions in the economy. All of those could be reasons. And I'm, I'm just saying maybe we should add dollar strength to that list as well. So again, that's my view. I could be totally wrong, right? We could see the dollar blow through some of these resistance levels 
above 100, 103, 104, 105, and, and rocket higher. And, and obviously, that'd be a huge buying opportunity, in my opinion, for silver and gold. I'm just not sold on that. I think the dollar has a limited amount of time to run higher. And therefore, gold and silver have a limited time to, to run lower before the Fed ultimately acts in a majorly duffish way. And, you know, the longer they wait to act, maybe the higher the dollar can go in the meantime. But once they do begin to act, once the economy starts to break down, I think it's going to become very clear to people that the, the Fed is... Nothing's changed at the Fed in terms of, of their unstated mandate to, to support uh, the market and support the financial system by, by easing their monetary policy. And, and that's going to be bullish for precious metals. You might not see it reflected right away, right? Sometimes we see the Fed hike rates and you see metals go up. That'd be counterintuitive. Sometimes you see uh, the, the Fed uh, telegraph some, some dovish message and we see you know, the dollar go up and, and precious metals go down. But as a whole... When we look over a period of weeks or months or years, dovish policy is going to be bullish for precious metals. And, and so, again, it's a limited amount of time. The, the other piece of this make or break uh, idea is, is that we are heading into summertime, which historically has been a weaker time for, for precious metals. But there is a lot to, to wonder, you know, is, what are the odds of getting into a conflict with Iran? What are the odds of an escalation on the, the Korean Peninsula or in the South China Sea or Taiwan or in this trade war or whatever it is, or just an increased uh, uh, view by, by analysts and traders that the Fed is on the cusp of cutting rates or, or starting up the printing presses again? So again, it's make or break here. Wouldn't be surprised if we saw another breakdown in Meadows. But you know, then again, we, we, we have seen quite a bit of weakness over the last you know, week or two. Also, would be surprising to see silver and gold stabilize somewhat. And I know that is incredibly unsatisfying to hear me say that sometimes, that they can go up and they can go down. What I'm saying right now is my opinion. If you want to nail me down on this, my opinion is that, yeah, I think it's very likely that we see some weakness. Short-term strength, maybe, but over the next couple of weeks, month or two, some more weakness or sideways trading in silver and gold. Don't see a whole lot of reason to be super bullish right now. And that's fine. I'll be talking about this in a video tomorrow. That that negative sentiment on precious metals or low prices that that, that is not a reason to lose heart or or to to leave the market. I mean, for for those of you that have been here for for years uh, dealing with these low prices, that's quite the opposite. Opposite, right? You you buy when there's blood on the streets. You buy when when fear is at an all time high in this given market or sentiment is at an all time low. Uh, that's not the time to be selling usually. But anyways. On the topic of precious metals and, and markets, I, I want to share this article is, with you. This is from Zero Hedge, talking about an exchange. Now, this is the Internet, Inter, Intercontinental Exchange, planning on launching the first ever speed bump for U.S. futures market that would essentially slow down the high-frequency trading market. Now, when you think of high-frequency trading, you think of speed bump, and if you're thinking like, half a second delay, a second delay, 30 second delay. No, what we're talking here is actually, I think the, the number they say here is actually three millisecond pause, which is very small. But in the realm of high frequency trading, that's a huge edge. Basically, they're proposing this speed bump before executing some trades in its gold and silver futures contract. Now, as this article points out from, from Zero Hedge, trading in those contracts in the ICE, the Intercontinental Exchange, is relatively tiny as most gold and silver futures trades take place at the CME Group. The CME Group 
uh, I think for formerly the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, I don't know if that's officially what it stands for anymore. Um, those are the people that own the, the NYMEX, the, the New York uh, Mercantile Exchange, as well as the COMEX, the Commodities Exchange. COMEX that much of the silver and gold paper trading takes place at. So ICE, fairly small market in comparison to that when we're talking about silver and gold. As it points out here, however, traders have been watching this decision because of the precedent it could set. Now, there were two, I guess, nay votes on this. I think it was a board of five. Uh, yes, five commissioners. Two of them disagreed, a Democrat and Republican. And I find this really interesting. Republican, uh, he cited Kurt Vonnegut's short story, Harrison Bergeron, where the government forces handicaps and talented people to create a level playing field. Now, if you guys aren't familiar with this story, it's it's absolutely a, a, a very valid criticism to, to bring up this, this story of Harrison Bergeron. Now, the story of this is basically everybody in, in this reality has some sort of a handicap that's put in place in order to level the playing field. Meaning everybody, to some extent, is, is handicapped. So, for instance, I think there's one character that would receive a, a jolt of electricity or basically they only could keep a, 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 a clear line of thought for a certain amount of time before they would basically have to start from, from square one uh, because of this jolt of electricity, I, I, if I remember correctly. Other people would have um, weights on them to, to act as a physical Handicap, and that's basically what he's saying here. "Quote: Those that invent and invest, invent and invest in faster information transmission technologies to capitalize on market dislocations reap the profits of their advantage. That process enhances market efficiency." And, and so I totally get his criticism here, but in the realm of high frequency trading, is that really market efficiency? Is that really what the, could be classically defined as as a market? And I would argue that, that not really, no, that's not the case, especially when we're talking about uh, high-frequency trading being significant impact by something like a three millisecond delay. That That is a, a tiny amount of time. Is this truly a market that's trading here, or is this just algorithms? And, and is it really going to be impacted all that much by three milliseconds? Or is this maybe slowly, in, in a very small step, bringing it something closer to, to what an actual market is. I could be wrong. Now, if this was a government organization, I might feel differently about this. But since this is a private exchange implementing this law, I, I say more the power to them. If they want more organic markets, as opposed to what we have now, ones that are run by high-frequency trading, algorithms, and the like, I say, when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Great. Now, I think a big error that people make when it, when, when it comes to something like the precious metals or the stock market in terms of algorithms and high-frequency trading and whatnot is, is assuming that it's all done with nefarious means, that, that it's all done by some entities or traders out there that are looking to, to suppress a certain market 
or prop up another market. And I don't think that's the case at all. I think that happens, right? We see billions or millions of dollars of notional gold or silver dropped in, in a very illogical way, right? We see those those price smashes in the silver and gold market all the time. And it, it doesn't make any sense. Like, why would they choose to dump uh, millions or billions of dollars of, of paper contracts at once, thus forcing down the price and, and insurance that they're, they're, they're going to get a lower price on, on those contracts that are sold later, rather than selling them throughout a day or, or even just 30 minutes or an hour. It, it makes no sense. And it, it reeks of, of desperation, reeks of manipulation. The same thing goes for the stock market. When you have the same thing happen in reverse and you see massive propping up. And I'm sure manipulation to the downside happens as well. Those things happen, but you also have to understand that a lot of the algorithms, a lot of the high frequency trading, even if I'm not a fan of it, even if it leads to more inorganic markets, it's oftentimes just done with with, with a goal of profit. It's it's not done with for 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 reasons to to manipulate in, in the classic sense when we talk about manipulate manipulate in a in a uh, as a malevolent force acting in the market. So that's something to keep in mind. And, and, and when you see high-frequency trading or al- algorithms, maybe that's our enemy because it's, it's leading to a, a less organic market, a market that's more paper or digital-based versus what really matters in commodities markets, which is the physical. But it's not, I don't think, quite on the same scale as, as uh, open manipulation, dumping of, of massive amounts of paper or digital contracts in order to force down the price or vice versa, buying up huge amounts of, of stocks to prop up a stock or, or, or a stock market index. So I still, I found this interesting and it'll be interesting to see if we see the CME group or, or other organizations choose to implement rules like this and the effect that it'll have on high frequency trading. But moving on, the other topic I want to talk about here, shifting gears, uh, Farmageddon. Now this is by Michael Snyder via the Economic Collapse blog, and I think he's been the one that that's been sh- having quite a bit of his work shared over on Zero Hedge regarding the damage that's being done to the U.S. farm sector thus far in 2019, largely due to, to weather. Now we'll talk about the trade war here some as well. That's that's pretty important, but but mostly this has been weather related. As he states here, only 30% of U.S. cornfields have been planted. It's, this was written May 16th or, or published here May 16th, maybe May 15th. Uh, let's see here. May 15th maybe is when he wrote it. The five-year average is 66%. In fact, he actually gives numbers down below here for Iowa, 48% planted, less than half. Five-year average, 76%. Minnesota, my home state, 21%. Five-year average is 65%. North Dakota, South Dakota, 11 and 4% respectively. Five-year average, 43 and 54%. And as he states here, uh, in a couple different places, where does he put it? In addition, for every day after May 15th, that corn is not in the ground, farmers lose approximately 2% of their yield. This is, as he says here, potentially a true national catastrophe. For a reason that maybe some of you guys in, in this financial realm maybe wouldn't, wouldn't assume. Now, I'll be talking about auto loans and the subprime auto loan bubble here in a second. And, and I would kind of rope farms into that category of being very dangerous to the economy, uh, a failure of, of the farm sector or ma- massive underperformance, but not necessarily a systemic risk on the scale of subprime mortgages or the government national debt or, or, or corporate debt or something like that. If we have all these farms go belly up, the real risk is to our food supply. The risk is inflation. 
the risk is uh, having to rely on on uh, uh, foreign sources for amounts of for, for, for large amounts of, of food and potentially forcing up food prices and whatnot. Along the way, that I, I, I have no doubt that there will be a lot of bank um, banks foreclosing on, on farms or, or farmers going bankrupt. I think that's very likely. I just don't think that that's going to be a large enough problem because agriculture is just not... Now, for some of these states, it's going to be a big deal, but, but I don't think it's going to lead to some sort of total collapse of the economy, uh, national economy. In some of these states, it's going to hurt their economy quite a bit. It's going to hurt a, far, a fair amount of... of uh, of rural rural uh, communities that rely on on these farms for for their livelihood, it's a tragedy, right? I know I, I'm I'm sure I have viewers listening right now um, that are farmers or or in some way dependent on the farm industry here in the United States, and and this is tragic. I mean, these are are in many cases good hardworking people, even those that work on those large farms, the corporate farms and whatnot, good hardworking people, uh, and and. You know, this this is only going to do more damage to uh, many of these rural communities, uh, many of which which have already seen you know decimation of the the traditional farm, the family owned farm or whatever, uh, and and you know the takeover by by large corporations. It's a tragedy. Um, now the the flip side to this is also that that he's pointing out here. Uh, normally, if corn farmers have a problem getting corn in the ground, then they just switch to soybeans instead. But thanks to the trade war, soybean exports have plummeted dramatically. And the price of soybeans is the lowest that it has been in a decade. As a result, there's very little profit, if any, in growing, sorry, in growing soybeans this year. And I would add to that, there's quite a bit of uncertainty. Uh, the, the upside in the soybean market is that you know, this trade war could, could come to an end prior to harvest. Soybean prices could stabilize now. You know, just because it's it's finished by harvest. I mean, the the nature of the, the futures markets and whatnot in these grains is a little more complicated than just saying that it has to be fixed by harvest time. But you know, the prices could recover. They they could still eke out some sort of a profit if the trade war comes to an end. But as reported by J.P. Morgan, they're warning the perfect storm forming in the United States. Now they're talking about John Deere here, but basically perfect storm for U.S. farmers. Namely, I would say that the large amount of rain as well as this this ongoing trade war. Now, what's kind of frustrating to me is, is at the end here, uh, they, they do point out the deepening trade war has led Trump to, ble- to pledge $15 billion worth of agricultural product purchases from American farmers through the Commodity Credit Corporation, a federal agency given authority during the Great Depression to stabilize prices. And, you know, to the individual farmers, that's great. Uh, it's probably hard for you to be against such an action, considering if it wasn't taken, if that action wasn't taken, then maybe you might lose your farm. But as a whole, it's, it's unfortunate. It, it's sort of like shooting ourselves in the foot. Right, beginning a trade war and then having to to prop up um, the the commodities, the soft commodities market, in order to offset the downside to this. Now I get it. China does the same when it comes to things like steel. Right, they dump cheap steel, and and in some ways it's subsidized subsidized by by the Chinese government. Uh, but but as a whole, I, I do see this as as Michael Snyder would uh, call it a catastrophe. What does he call it? Uh, a, a truly this is a truly a major national crisis, and it's just getting started. 
And and this is probably going to play out throughout the summer, um, into into harvest time, and and it'll be interesting to see just just how bad it gets for these farmers and and the impact that it will have on the U.S. economy. I don't think again it's it's a systemic problem like it's going to lead to collapse of of regional banks or local banks or anything like that, but I I think that it is going to weigh on on the U.S. economy uh, during the summer during the fall time and and potentially. Um, compound additional economic problems that may already leave us in a recession during that time period. Uh, now, now speaking of, of debt bubbles, this is another one I wanted to talk about. This is from Wolf Richter talking about the auto loan delinquency spiked to, court, to, to quarter three 2009 levels. Now, he's got a fancy chart here. Wolf usually does have some great charts. This is basically showing the um, auto loan delinquency. So 90 plus days delinquent percentage of auto loan balances. 4.69%, which as he says... You know, last time that was reached was uh, last time it was there was 2012. It looks like roughly or 2011, as well as 2009. That's when it kind of crossed that level. Now again, auto loan delinquencies. There, there's quite a bit of auto loan debt here in the United States, but how much is a car? You know, you might be taking out a a, a ten thousand, fifteen, twenty, thirty thousand dollar loan at the most. Maybe some of those higher priced ones. I, I see the price of, of some of those trucks or luxury vehicles out there much higher than that. But as a whole, it is much smaller size loan than something like a mortgage, right? And, and that's kind of what I said earlier. You know, I think this, this subprime bubble in, in the auto market is, is not a huge systemic risk. He's got some other charts here as well um, in terms of billions of dollars, uh, pretty significant, $60 billion. But... Compared to something like the mortgage uh, subprime crisis prior to the Great Recession or during the Great Recession, much, much smaller. Now, this is going to hurt bank profits. It's going to hurt the economy. But I see this more so as an indicator than a source of some sort of a contagion or source of some sort of a breakdown. Basically, what this is indicating is that as of quarter one, 2019, the consumer is in a very bad position in terms of this is almost one in 20 auto loans that are delinquent over 90 days. Does this mean banks will collapse because of this? Not necessarily. It, it could you know, play into some serious weakness in terms of profits or whatever. But what it's telling me is that the U.S. consumer is sick, that very sick. They've been sick for quite a while, that they're up to their eyeballs in debt, and that it's really putting a strain on them. Right? When you see uh, increasing debt is one thing, but the, the real indicators to watch for, for, you know, when, because debt can increase for a very long period of time. But if you want to know when, you know, the next recession is potentially coming, you got to look for when the delinquency on that debt starts to rise, right? Whether it's mortgages, whether it's uh, credit cards, auto loans, student loans, etc. Because that is when you find out when the consumer has been really tapped out, whether it's because they're losing their job, they're having their hours cut, their wages just aren't keeping up with inflation and living expenses. Um, any of those things could potentially be part of it, lose, or, you know, losing their job. Any of those could be part of why these delinquency rates are going up. Uh, so this is something to, to, to keep an eye on. Now, again, switching gears, I want to talk quickly about Iran. Heading into the weekend here, I, I, I see this as a very risky situation, dumb situation. I'm not going to go on a super long rant here because... Uh, I, my viewers know, and maybe I've done that a couple times in the last videos, talking about Iran. 
This one, again, is from Zero Hedge. Quite a bit of Zero Hedge articles here today. Uh, I try not to get too much from one source uh, in terms of reporting to you guys, but I do read a fair amount of Zero Hedge, and uh, this well, it just happens to be a, a Zero Hedge kind of week. Two more U.S. warships travel to Persian Gulf as tensions with Iran escalate. This is in addition to the carrier strike group that's already in the region. Who knows what other um, uh, naval forces are. I think there might be like a, an amphibious uh, landing craft or something like that in the region. Um, there's obviously quite a few air forces and land forces in the region and, and some different regional bases uh, or air base on, uh, what's that? What's the name of that island in the middle of the Indian Ocean? I forget the name of it. Uh, Abu Garcia, maybe? Or, or Diego Garcia. Uh, I, I was crossing up. Abu Garib and Diego Garcia. I think the Diego Garcia Islands. Yeah, right. Am, am, I, am I right there? Diego Garcia Island. I think I got this right here. Yeah. Uh, it's a it's a very large uh, military, U.S. military base that is leased to the United States uh, by the uh, by the British. And it is a huge staging ground for, for uh, aircraft and, and as well as naval vessels. It's a pretty key strategic point because it's in the middle of nowhere where we otherwise probably wouldn't have a base. And now, again, this is having the destroyers in the region, you know, the, those types of, of forces, you know, it, it makes me wonder if, if we could be coming up on some sort of a preemptive strike be cruise missiles it could be aircraft it could be both now now who's conducting the strike is also very important is it just the united states is saudi arabia or israel involved as well uh or or even other european countries uh the uk or france which is i think less likely but not outside of the realm of possibility and and what is it is is it just cruise missiles because that's one thing is it aircraft actually penetrating Iranians uh, uh, defenses and, and, and launching some sort of air to surface missile there um, or do they stay outside of the airspace and release their their ordinance outside of the air, uh, of Iranian airspace it's hard to say um, but but I wouldn't be surprised if we saw that now that, that's that the threat of escalation from something like that is huge now you guys remember I think it was uh, was it last year two years in a row there we saw uh, Trump uh, order the the launching of was it two years? Uh, two separate times where we launched a large amount of cruise missiles into Syria. I think that was two different times. And uh, that was, as a whole, not super effective, I don't think. Uh, but also it didn't lead to a huge escalation. But in this case, you know, I think that the threat of an escalation from something like that is, is much, much higher. Who knows? I mean, maybe this is preparation for something even bigger. It could be absolutely nothing. It could be um, just brinksmanship for the, for the sakes of, of brinksmanship, right? Who knows? But it's something to keep an eye on over the weekend. Don't be surprised if this escalates or, or if you hear further reports of things like, I don't know, oil tankers being attacked or or Iranian speedboats in, in the Strait of Hormuz or, or whatever it is, drone attacks by, by Iranian proxies. Make no mistake, like this... I see this as a very real threat, you know, going back to silver and gold, you know, this could be something that, that moves them up significantly if, if we even get a whiff of a actual live conflict with Iran. I hope that's not the case, but I won't be surprised if it's the case, right? It's, it's exciting to watch all that.
play out. But we have to remember that these are real human lives we're talking about, uh, real economies that we're talking about, and, and the implications of a war with Iran. Um, it could turn into a, a real humanitarian crisis very quickly. Final thing I want to talk about here, really a wide range of topics I'm talking about here. This is uh, an article again from Zero Hedge. UK cops fine pedestrian $115 for avoiding facial recognition camera. This, I mean, this is almost like something you'd expect to see from like the Onion News. But basically, the UK utilizes facial recognition cameras. Sounds like they were using a van uh, in this case, to, to use this, this hardware and software to capture the faces of passerbys and compare them to a database of wanted criminals. Now I get it. It's, it's a public domain, right? You're out in public. You should expect to be surveyed or, or, you know, it's not necessarily an invasion of privacy, but it still is extremely worrying, UK and, and London in particular has a long time been known as kind of the surveillance capital of the world. Now, maybe some places in China will, will give it a run for its money. Maybe the United States and some cities in the United States will give it its run for its money. But having this type of surveillance, even if it's in the public domain, on public streets, is just not something I'm a fan of, right? It's always being done with the reasons of, of combating crime or, or whatever. Uh, but But... Very quickly, when, when you have things like facial recognition software or even something probably less uh, uh, technologically advanced, something like license plate scanners, face scanners versus license plate scanners, it's very easy to track the whereabouts of people, of citizens, right? Never mind the detection of criminals. It's very easy to abuse this power, right? Look no further than China and, and their social credit system. Right? I think the example I always give, and this by now is probably like a year or two old, some, some radio reporters that wanted to test this facial recognition software by going to a busy, I think it was a subway or a train station in China. And within minutes, you know, they're, they're, they're recording this while they're walking around this busy station with probably hundreds or thousands of, of Chinese people walking around. Within minutes of being there, they were approached by some security personnel. Basically, they didn't fit in. Now, I don't know if they were Chinese, of Chinese descent, or if it, or if they just stuck out, stuck out like a sore thumb because they were white or, or some other ethnicity. Uh, but I'm sure it was because of something like surveillance or even face recognition technologies. They were somewhere where they weren't supposed to be. It was an anomaly. The system detected an anomaly, and pretty quickly they were able to use that to, to you know, ask them, what are you doing here? I, I don't remember exactly what happened, if they were allowed to continue on their way or what. Uh, but you can see pretty quickly how this could be abused for uses other than just trying to find wanted criminals. I mean, the question always is, is what happens when you become a wanted criminal? Not because you're like a, a, a bank robber or, or like a serial killer or something like that, right? That's the image that comes to, to mind. But what if you're just a political dissident? Right. What, what if you're not um, maybe maybe, you know, in the case of somewhere like China. Right. I was, I was recently watching a great video by Vox who, who don't always you know, they, they usually have a liberal slant, but they were doing an investigative report on uh, what is it called? The Xianjing province. I think that's what it is in uh, western China, which is home to a large population of a Muslim minority. Or at least it's getting pretty close to minority. I don't know if it's officially there. Historically, it's been a very large amount of the population there were, were Muslims. But since then, uh, quite a bit of other um, 
ethnicities as well as a lot of just ethnic Han Chinese have moved into the region to kind of dilute that. But uh, they, they are seen as extremists. And, and I get it. You know, maybe some Muslims are extremists, but we're talking about placing them in internment camps, right? Not because uh, they're, you know, uh, approaching levels of violence on the scale of, of what we see in places like, you know, ISIS or Al-Qaeda occupied territories, uh, but just because they would revolt against uh, or, or, or throw riots because they felt oppressed by the Chinese government. And we're talking about maybe as many as like a million of these ethnic Muslims in these internment camps. And it, it doesn't take long, as somebody pointed out, for internment camps to turn into uh, concentration camps. right? And how easy would it be to do that if you have something like facial recognition technology? You might not even need internment camps, right? You can keep tabs on them this way, right? And, and by no means do I think that that means more freedom for these people. That's, that's less freedom. So it, it, it's, it's very concerning. And it'll be interesting to see, you know, if this is deployed more in the United States. Um, I'm sure it will be, you know, within a decade, uh, much like license plate scanners and whatnot. Um, and, and I think the, the end result of this is, yeah, maybe they'll catch more criminals. But overall, I think much less freedom freedom of movement for the average U.S. citizen, the average citizen around the world. So anyways, quite a few topics, precious metals, exchanges, high-frequency trading, farming sector here in the United States, the auto subprime crisis in Iran, That's and, and this uh, uh, surveillance states. Uh, that's a wide range of topics, but I hope you guys enjoyed it. Hope you learned something today. As always, if you like these videos, let me know down below in the comment sections. If you don't, let me know there as well. Rather than just give me a thumbs down, I, I love to hear constructive criticism. So let me know. As always, thank you guys from the bottom of my heart for watching this video, listening to this podcast, and God bless.